Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular Continuing Medical Education Podcast. Join us each week to discuss the most pressing topics in cardiology and gain valuable insights that can be directly applied to your practice. Hello, my name is Paul Friedman. I'm chair of the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine at Mayo Clinic, and I'm delighted to have with me today Dr. Jason Anderson, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics with a specialty in structural heart disease, interventional structural heart disease. Jason, thank you for joining me. Dr. Friedman, thanks for having me and for covering this exciting topic today. We're going to talk about PFOs, who to close, when to close, how to close, how to care for them afterwards. And let's start with the basics. One in four of us on this planet have a PFO. How do they um, usually come to attention and when do you decide to close them? Yeah, and a fantastic starting point and um, a great segue into the congenital side of this population. And so, as you said, Dr. Friedman, the foramen ovalis in utero isn't a patent foramen ovalis. It's there in everyone. And it's a one-way valve. So as the septum is forming, it has a flap and a circumferential uh, ridge, and it opens to let blood bypass the lungs. So all of us as humans have a foramen ovalis prior to being born. And upon birth, with pressure changing, that one-way valve closes up and shuts. Now, over time, some patients will seal up that flap, and we call that closure. But a vast majority of the population, 20 to 25%, ranging in over a billion patients um, uh, worldwide, still have patency of the foramen ovalis. We would call them people, then not patients at this point, right? You're exactly right, <laughs> Dr. Friedman. And so I think one of the most common questions I get asked is, well, if I have a PFO, do my kids have a PFO or do my family members have a PFO? And the answer is, is, well, yes, your kids had it and they may or may not have closed over time, but it doesn't cause a problem in the vast majority of people. Um, however, we have more recently uh, understood that it can be quite problematic uh, for a certain group of patients, uh, specifically those who have a stroke at a young age. Talk a little bit more about the stroke and the importance of age and its impact on when we think about the closing of PFO. Absolutely. And so as we already mentioned, if, if the, there's almost ubiquitous presence of a, a foramen ovalis in children and infants, um, why isn't it problematic? Well, over time and age, we do see that the, the general population uh, prevalence of a, uh, of a PFO does decrease. And with increasing age, and what we mean is, is up to the age of 60, until that age, we don't see a lot of the standard risk factors starting to manifest and become problematic in a patient who's had a stroke. Many of those haven't, had, had, haven't yet developed and uh, will become more impactful over time. And so when we see patients who are younger uh, than 60 years of age who have had a stroke, it starts to trigger in our mind, well, is there something here beyond just an acquired condition or something that has changed over time um, or damage that has occurred from uh, needing chemotherapy or smoking or having um, comorbidities like diabetes mellitus? Is this actually a structural-based phenomenon where this connection in the heart is still present and can allow blood to kind of jump from the one side of the circulation to the other, in essence, bypassing the filter. 
So in other words, just to summarize it for anyone listening, in a young person, if they have a PFO and if they have a stroke where the brain imaging suggests it's embolic, especially if it suggests it's centrally embolic, which means coming may affect two sides of the brain, something that couldn't be from a carotid or something else. And it's a young person, we think, boy, maybe they had a clot in the leg that went up to the heart, crossed that patent foramen valley, and caused that stroke. Whereas by the time you're over 60, it's muddied by all the other conditions we collect with time in our bodies. High blood pressure, narrowed arteries, and those things. So it's a lot less clear. Is that a fair summary? I couldn't have said it better myself, Dr. Friedman. And I think you hit the nail on the head when you said embolic appearing, and we listed some of those other factors. If a patient has a stroke, especially a young patient, there's a very systematic approach that we would recommend for an evaluation as to the underlying cause. And this is actually where it's extremely important that a cardiology team and a neurology team coexist. And in our uh, own experience at Mayo Clinic, we like to co-locate those two services in a singular clinic, looking at both the heart and the brain to try to understand, is there a manner in which we can link this stroke to a single cause? Is it a vascular disease? Is there a valvular issue? Is there an arrhythmia? Is there something that could be at, at play here? But in the absence of any identifiable cause, after a standardized workup, including head imaging, rhythm assessment, and structural imaging of the heart, um, and that includes imaging of the neck and uh, great vessels as well, then uh, we would say that's a cryptogenic stroke or a stroke from an unknown source. And that's when the PFO becomes uh, more important. Okay. Now, um, if you're an imager, then you probably know, but good to tell everybody, what sort of imaging do you like to determine whether or not a PFO is there? How can you tell if it's clinically important or not? What are the things to look for? This is an area that can be quite difficult in our field. And we've actually seen modifications in our own practice at Mayo Clinic because of what we've learned over the past five to 10 years, where we've seen a lot more individuals that fall into this um, pathway. One of the first things to state is the PFO is a valve-based uh, finding. So if the valve is closed, you may not see it. And on standard uh, echocardiography of an adult, it can be extremely difficult to visualize the atrial septum with enough resolution to prove that there's a PFO by just a routine echo. Now, there are certain things we can do that help us uncover or unmask a PFO. And be, being that it's a one-way valve or uh, a flap-type system, if we raise the pressure on one side for an instant, it can pop open the valve. It can sometimes give us insight into, can this, this, does this valve exist? Is it present? And if it is, how large can it manifest? Can it cause a big shunt even momentarily? which would allow for a, a potential a a paradoxical thromboembolic event. And the way we do that is we actually inject a contrast-based medium. We actually call it agitated saline, which is just uh, micro bubbles. So air agitated with saline and mixed with blood to raise the surface tension. And it allows us to see if anything crosses from the right side to the left. With that, you're relying on the ability to raise that pressure for a, a moment. And that's uh, what we call a Valsalva maneuver. We bear down, we raise the afterload, and we acutely drop it, blood rushes back to the heart, and we see if we can pop open that valve either during or upon the release of that Valsalva uh, maneuver. And that can really only be done effectively 
not under sedation. So it oftentimes is best done with a, a, a transthoracic echocardiogram. And in a patient with a, a stroke, I would recommend that assessment be performed during the routine structural heart assessment. A bubble study, patient gets an IV, transthoracic echo, best way to diagnose a PFO, actively looking for it. Exactly right. We actually take it a little, one step further. We now actually grade the degree of shunt based on the amount of, of bubbles we actually see crossover. And the grading system is a one through four based grade. And the magic number to remember is 20 microbubbles. So if we see more than 20 microbubbles in the left heart in a single clip or a single uh, view of the heart, then we grade that as grade three or higher, depending on the, the shunt. And when we see grade three or higher shunt, that would be, we would call a large shunt versus um, a small shunt. And it's important for uh, distinguishing that when we talk about things like the Pascal score or a score-based system to see who is at kind of the highest probability that the event was occurring because of a PFO. So we've gone through that evaluation. We decide the person needs to have a PFO closure. I'm going to come back in a minute and go into some detail about how that's performed. But for now, let's just assume they go to the cath lab, they come back, their PFO is closed. Post-operative management for the uh, internist cardiologist, medications, things to watch for, potential complications early and late. One of the things we'll talk about uh, momentarily will be device selection. And the device selected does impact both uh, my recommendations uh, or our, pardon me, our recommendations here at Mayo Clinic about uh, the follow-up, as well as what you might be looking for. The device itself will, will oftentimes lead to the recommendation on the type of follow-up to occur. Once the device goes in, the device inside the heart should be well-seated and well-positioned. The vast majority of position problems occur immediately or very soon after the device is placed. And so once the patient's in follow-up and, and uh, discharged from the uh, surgical encounter, you, you shouldn't be struggling with alterations to the device itself. And now over the course of the months that follow, the device will actually heal into place. No matter the uh, device chosen, you form your own tissue over top that device. It can take upwards of about three to four months to be fully covered in your own tissue. And during that time, that new tissue, that immature tissue, can send out extra kind of electrical signals. And Dr. Friedman, I'm in your ballpark here. <laughs> but when that occurs, you can actually see a slight increase in ectopy, which the patient can feel often denoted as palpitations. And that ectopy can occasionally cause or induce atrial fibrillation. And we call that a device-associated atrial fibrillation. The risk of that is low. Uh, we usually would say for a young patient, it'd be one to 2%, upwards of three to 5% for a patient who's older, above 70 years of age. So we watch for it more uh, in, in our later decades of life. Um, and if it occurs, uh, we'll often medically manage it through the six-month uh, post-op timeframe. And the reason we choose six months is by then that, that endothelialization has really finalized, that new tissue is formed, and the vast majority of those who experience it will have self-resolution at that point. If not, they may need to see an electrophysiologist. Sure, sure. So we screen for AFib. And then what about routine management, normal sinus rhythm? What drugs do you give them? What medications are adjunctive to PFO closure? Yeah, for a standard closure, you will have no uh, rhythm modifying agents. Um, you will be uh, 
reduced for your anticoagulation to just a baby aspirin a day. So just 81 milligrams of aspirin. If you have a stroke, even after the PFO closure is done and the device is healed in, we recommend staying on 81 milligrams of aspirin. And that's per the American Academy of Neurology guidelines, stroke of any cause. And so that'll be your medication lifelong. Uh, in addition, we often will give seven days of Plavix right after the device goes in. It's uh, an antiplatelet just to prevent any kind of intolerance to the device immediately after placement. Some of the studies only did three days. Some interventions will do up to three months. Our standard at Mayo Clinic is just a seven-day period starting the day after closure. And we just give seven tablets and they stop as soon as they're uh, finished. So now let's let's jump back into the procedure itself, that, that magical window where the patient goes off to the room, comes back to the room. What's the patient experience for the procedure? Is it done under general anesthesia or light sedation? Are they in the hospital overnight? What's the current standard? Well, this is an area that has changed drastically. And it's wonderful because these devices that we use for, that benefit our patients later in life, remember these came from decades of work for children. We've been closing big holes in small kids for a very long time, for the 50 years. And the renditions of devices in that arena have undergone surmountable change and has led to the innovation that now gives us the ability to close a PFO in a full-size adult with a lot of latitude and safety that we didn't have in prior eras. And so the current state of art for PFO device closure is you'll actually come into the procedure area on the day of the procedure. So you'll show up uh, early in the morning. You'll meet the interventionalist on that day say hi, answer any uh, final questions. And then you actually go straight to the procedure room. There's no anesthesia. It's lidocaine only. So we do a, a few um, uh, cc's of lidocaine in the right leg. And we put in two uh, uh, sheaths in the right leg or small filters for, uh, for the audience to prevent any blood loss. And then one of the sheaths houses a small echocardiogram probe that looks like a catheter. And uh, that actually gives visualization just like a TEE but it's not in the esophagus, there's no discomfort. It's sitting in the right atrium. So under live echo, we go up and cross the PFO and then seal it with a, a device of our selection. The patient's fully awake watching this uh, occur. So we show the screen, we show the flap, we show the closure. And the benefit of that is as once the device is in, you can test it in real time. So we then actually do an agitated saline injection with a Valsalva maneuver with the patient watching on the screen, showing that we have a nice seal, the device is well seated, there's no impingement on surrounding structures, and then the device can be fully released. The devices are also implantable and explantable. So if we put a device in and it doesn't give a nice seal or there's a second defect or there's something else we wanna take care of at the same time, we can remove the device, change, change sizes, change shapes, kind of customize it to the patient during the experience. As soon as we're done, everything comes out of the body except for the device. The device stays where we put it. Once everything is out, we hold pressure where those sheets were for about five minutes and the patient goes to our recovery area. They can have breakfast as soon as they're in the recovery area. They rest for about two to three hours and then walk. And as long as there's no discomfort with walking or any issues where the, uh, the sheets were, uh, the patient can go home that day. That's remarkable, really. Some patients may have allergies or it's pretty rare, but occasionally you get like a nickel intolerance. Do these things affect, and not to get too wonky and technical, but does that affect your device choices? Is there any sort of testing you need to do ahead of time for these things? That's a fantastic question. The 
5% of the general population will have an intolerance to nickel. You don't need a, a fancy test to tell you you have an intolerance because a lot of what we use in daily life is comprised of nickel. For instance, the button on your jeans or jewelry. Individuals will often know if they have a sensitivity to nickel because it can cause a rash and do and make it kind of red and inflamed. Now, a skin intolerance to nickel does not equate to a blood intolerance to nickel. That's very important because those patients who have a skin intolerance to nickel will often still uh, be tolerant of any of the devices currently on the market. Very rarely, patients will have a blood intolerance to nickel. And if that's the case, we do prefer one device over another. And the device we prefer is the, the Gore Cardioform Septal Occluder, mainly because the, the frame or the nickel composed area of the device is inside Gore-Tex. So there's less exposed to the body, less exposed uh, to the bloodstream. But we would that would be our customization. We would still offer closure to those patients. And we haven't encountered difficulties with it to date. Doesn't mean we won't in the future. Fantastic. One last question before, before I let you go, and that is, tell me about migraine headaches. So one time it was all the rage to close PFOs for migraines. What's the current state of the art there? I'm very happy to say that there is currently a trial underway to assess the utility of PFO closure for migraine relief. There are very rigorous enrollment criteria in requiring a notebook with multiple medication uh, trials. And the most interesting part of this trial is it has a sham arm. So you go, you go in for the PFO closure, you cross the PFO, and then the phone call is made about closure or not to close which is very rare in the current era, yeah. but it's very exciting because this is the best way to assess its impact on migraine and to try to remove the components of other variables like Plavix. Plavix, which is often used after PFO closure, can reduce migraines. We know it works for migraines. So we don't know if we're getting medication benefit, structural benefit, or something else, but this is uh, exciting because we're actually gonna assess that question. Fantastic. So this should overcome the limitations of the previous trials that left us all scratching our heads. Dr. Jason Anderson, thank you so much for joining me. It's been very informative. Thank you, Dr. Friedman. Appreciate your time. Thank you for joining us today. Feel free to share your thoughts and suggestions about the podcast by emailing cvselfstudy at mayo.edu. Be sure to subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular CME podcast on your favorite platform and tune in each week to explore today's most pressing cardiology topics with your colleagues at Mayo Clinic. This has been a Mayo Clinic podcast.